The scripture today is from Romans 13, 8 through 14, and also 14, 1 through 9. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And from Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that we might be Lord so that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. Welcome. My name is uh, Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. And today is the first Sunday of October, which means uh, that normally we would be celebrating our our, uh, church anniversary, whatever you want to call that. But 10 uh, years ago, this weekend, we launched uh, Redeemer, uh, which has become both Redeemer City Church and Redeemer Southwest, and soon a, a Hispanic congregation, and Lord willing, uh, a congregation on the southeast side of Winter Haven towards Lake Wales in the next uh, year or two. So God's done amazing things among us, amen? Isn't that great? Yeah, it's, it's okay to clap in church. There you go. Thank you. If Patrick's got us doing this, we can at least clap every now and then when the pastor said, so you don't only have to interact with him, you can interact with me too if you'd like. We are uh, continuing this morning's series in the, uh, the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Roman Christians, and we've come, uh, this is really instructions to the church about what it looks like for us to be uh, a unique people in the world uh, in the way that we uh, live and love, live with and love one another. Now you remember We've been saying gospel belief leads to gospel behavior, and Romans 1 through 11, those first chapters, outlines what it means to believe the gospel. 
Here in Romans 12 through 16, Paul begins to lay out for us and describe what kind of people we become by believing the gospel, a people of humility and love. And so this morning, we begin a new section here in Romans 14. And the issue Paul turns to here is how do we treat people within Christianity, within the church, and, and there are wider, broader cultural implications too, but how do we treat people in the church who believe differently than we do? How do we relate to one another in areas of disagreement? Can we disagree about even important things and still welcome one another and not fall into despising and uh, passing judgment on one another? Because apparently that is what began to happen among these Roman Christians. And if it can happen to them, it can happen to us too. And so let me say, this is a, this is a skill that we desperately need to learn. Our culture is sick largely because we've forgotten how to disagree with one another in humility and love. Have you paid attention to that? Have you noticed that lately? And, that, and so what a great, what a great, great moment, what a great opportunity for us as Christians, as people of faith, as people with a greater allegiance to the kingdom of heaven and to its king. This is our moment to show the, to show the world uh, the surpassing greatness of the power of the gospel to make us people who can disagree and still love and receive and welcome one another. And so we're going to take a number of weeks, to be honest, uh, in chapter 14 and 15, because it's so important at this moment in our culture. It's so important in this moment for our church. We have a lot of work to do as a church uh, in the very things that Paul's talking about here. Because uh, we as leaders can feel us really wrestling, really struggling, and maybe even slipping a little bit away from what, you know, the center, the gospel center that we want to maintain uh, when it comes to these kinds of issues. So just kind of settle in for the next few weeks. My job today is to give us really an overview, a brief kind of 30,000 foot level of the issues that Paul's wrestling with and that he wants us to wrestle with here in these uh, chapters, okay? And so to do that, I'm going to, I got to, and I got to go quick this morning, but there are four points and they're going to be really, it's going to be rapid fire, okay? So here's what I want you to see. To give us a framework to be able to get in in more detail with these verses in, this, in these two chapters and really work them out together, I want you to see these four things because they really do create the frame, the frame that we need to have. First, Paul teaches four things here. He teaches us that life is gray. It's not always black and white. Secondly, that holiness or virtue is most often moderation. Thirdly, that love is intolerantly tolerant. I'll explain. And fourth, that grace is not an excuse, but is actually an excuse to disobedience, but grace is actually a drill, drill instructor. Do you see those things? Life is gray. Virtue, holiness is moderation. Love is intolerantly tolerant. And grace is is a drill instructor. I want us to see all four of those things quickly this morning from these verses. First, let's look together. Life is gray. What do I mean? Well, in the Bible, there are two types of fools. There's the person who says nothing is black and white, that there are no moral absolutes. Uh, it's the typical secular, modern person in our, you know, in our world. But then there's the person who says everything is black and white. There is no gray. And that person's a fool too. The wise person is the one who knows when you're dealing with what issue, who knows when you're dealing with something that's a matter of absolute black and white and when it's not a matter of black and white. And so there are things that are a matter of revelation. The moral rules in the Bible are God's instructions for running the human machine, as C.S. Lewis said. There are moral absolutes. There's a certain way the world works, and we work in the world, right? Make God first in everything. 
Take a break one day in every seven to worship and rest. Honor the authority structures in your life. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't even hate people because of what it done, does to your heart. Those are some of the non-negotiables. You see them up there in verses um, 10, 9 and 10. He begins to list these things. But here's the thing. Not, not every issue is like this. God has not spoken to every single issue we face. The Bible is not exhaustive, and you know I almost gasp as I say that, but there still remains a number of matters that are matters of personal conscience that don't fall into the category of right and wrong, but really a separate category of what is wise and unwise or what is helpful and not helpful. So uh, Paul writing to the Corinthians, he says this, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. He says, I can do whatever I want, but I should only do what helps me want the right things. There, there is right and wrong, black and white, but then there's also, there's gray. And the reality is, the truth is, we live most of our lives in the gray, where there is no clear sense of what God commands and what he forbids. And that is the issue Paul's dealing with in Romans 14, as the church has begun to, look verse 1, quarrel over opinions. That's what's begun to happen, and that word's very important. It refers to an instance where there is no clear moral rule. There is no thou shalt not. It refers to things that are indifferent, that it doesn't matter what you do. It really is a matter of your personal conscience with the Lord, that we live to the Lord. Now, ironically, these things that Paul says and that the Bible says don't really matter, these issues, a lot of the times, are the things that come to matter to some people the most. And that's the problem. That's what Paul's addressing. When it comes to right and wrong, as God has said it, we should be inflexible and insistent with one another. But when it comes to the issues where there is no clear right and wrong, we should be appreciative of the different ways that we approach such things and protective of one another's freedoms instead of forcing our opinions on other people and judging them for not thinking the way that we think. It's a serious spiritual error. It displays a lot of spiritual pride and arrogance, and it can destroy the other person and us and the church and the work of the gospel in the world, which is why Paul, think about this, think about this. In 16 chapters in this all-important letter, he spends two chapters. One-eighth of the book is about this issue. That's how important it is. Now, he goes on to give some examples, doesn't he? And this is instructive for us. He says, after he talks about these things, opinions, quarreling over opinions, he gives, he gives an example in verse 2. He says, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Man, I feel sorry for that person, to be honest with you. And then he goes down in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, there are two issues here. One is food, and the other is days. And, and, and they were the issue of the day, these, these things that Paul brings up here. They are not the issues of our day. And so, in order to understand, instead of trying to comment too much on exactly what Paul's referring to, I would instead put before you some of the issues of our day that are parallel to what Paul mentions here. And, and I, we have a number. I could, I could give you 15, 20 uh, such things. Some of them theological issues that we deal with. Uh, some of them just cultural issues. But if you think about this, issues like 
alcohol and, and tobacco use, and to be honest, soon marijuana use among Christians, which creates all kinds of divisions. The Bible does, says don't be drunk. It doesn't say don't drink. In fact, the Psalms model giving thanks to God for wine, which is strange. Or school. Do you, public, do you put your kids in public school or private school or do you homeschool? Which is the imperative that we're under as, as followers of Jesus? Or political affiliations. Do you have to align with one party or the other? Political involvement. What, what does political involvement look like for a Christian, particularly in this over-politicized world that we live in, or inside the family a little bit, these denominational, denominational tribalism, and the way that we hold on to the things that we believe that are unique of our group, and then we look at everybody else who doesn't believe exactly the way that we do, and we think, oh, you know what, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. We're the true church. We have, we have it together. Now, I'm going to do a scary thing. I'm going to tell you where I personally stand on all of these issues. Okay? You ready? I don't really drink. Not because I think there's something wrong with it, but I just don't really enjoy it that much, and I have enough vices, so I might as well not add any more. I don't drink coffee either for the same reason. We've homeschooled our kids historically, and now all four are in private Christian school, and we love it there. We love being at the school. I'm a registered independent because my greater allegiance to the king and the kingdom of heaven causes me to not feel at home in either party, and I love, 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 love being a Presbyterian. Now, if you would not come to this church because I'm the pastor and those are my opinions, or if you would consider leaving the church, and I hope you won't because I'd miss you, then that's a sign of spiritual weakness. It means you're taking things where there's a level of uncertainty, where God has given us freedom to choose for ourselves what is best because there is no clear right and wrong, and you're making them a matter of absolute certainty. You're saying this is right and this is wrong, not only for me, but for everybody else. You're taking things that are not essential to our faith, and you're making them essential. And when you do that, what happens is other things that should be essential get pushed out, and that's the problem. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing because so much of life is gray, and where we meet this gray in one another, we have to resist the temptation to quarrel with one another over opinions and instead welcome and embrace one another and appreciate one another in our differences. You with me? That's what Paul's saying. But secondly, secondly, the second big picture thing we learn here is Paul says that virtue or holiness is a, is a matter of moderation. And let me show you this in the text in just a minute. But Aristotle taught that virtue is the middle path between two extremes. He called it the golden mean. He, it's possible he said, to have too little courage. He called it cowardice, but he said it's also possible to have too much courage, and that's rashness. True courage is always somewhere in between, um, you know, cowardice on, on the one hand and rashness on the other. And so holiness works the same way. Holiness doesn't express itself in gluttony, of course, but it also doesn't express itself in asceticism. To borrow a phrase, it is neither hot prodigality nor dry puritanism. Neither, neither hot prodigality nor dry puritanism. And there are two dangers in the text. You see the first at the end of chapter 13. Paul goes on here to say, Let us walk properly, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Now this makes complete sense to us, doesn't it? Of course Christians shouldn't, shouldn't do such things. And this is all excess. It's, it's, it, the problem here is too much. It's too much lust, too much sexual activity, too much alcohol, too much pleasure. 
But isn't it interesting? Keep going in verse 13 there. Not in all these things, orgies, drunkenness, and sexual morality and sensuality, nor in quarreling and jealousy. Don't you love how he sneaks those things in there? Because you think, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not aware of there being orgies being thrown by anybody in the church, but there's some jealousy and there's quarreling. And that's too much, too. That is, in the same way as the other things, an indulging of the flesh. But it's strange to see those alongside of the others. But it's the same thing. That's what Paul's saying. We're not supposed to indulge in the flesh. We're to put it to death. And the problem here is excess. It's too much. Food is a good thing. Right? We're meant to enjoy it, but too much food is a bad thing. Wine is a good thing. Too much wine is a bad thing. And we call this license. It's this indulging in your freedom beyond the limits that God has given you, and it's deadly. The Bible says very clearly that we, as followers of Jesus, are to be sober and self-controlled. Verse 13, walking properly, that's diligently, thoughtfully, with purpose and restraint and planning ahead, making no provision for the flesh. That's what that word means. It means to think ahead of time, to make plans, to make plans for how we will live in obedience to Jesus instead of allowing our flesh to indulge itself. So that's the one error. But then in the next chapter, there are some in the church, we read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, who have fallen into the opposite error, and they are exerting pressure on the rest of the church to join them. For them, the danger is not too much, it's too little. Now I'm going to lose some of you here, i got to make you aware of that, because this is going to sound strange, but hear me out. This group that Paul's addressing now in chapter 14 uh, is introducing asceticism into the church. And what I mean by that is they, they, they say, sure, it's okay to eat and drink, but we should eat and drink less for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of holiness. And their assumption is that less of a good thing is always the best thing. So if you want to grow in, you know, in your commitment to Jesus, then you really should kind of tighten the buckle a little bit. Food is a good thing. You know, too much food is a bad thing. And they say, so let's, let's, let's do to, you know, let's do less of that. But here's, here's the thing. It sounds good at first, doesn't it? But it's just as deadly because true, food, food is a good thing and too much food is a bad thing, but so is too little. And wine is a good thing. And of course too much is obviously a bad thing, but so is too little. <laughs> and this position is legalism. It's denying your freedom and it's denying the freedom of, of other people it's forbidding what God has said is good, and it is just as serious an error as the other. Now, the ideal is the middle, not too much, but not too little, not indulging our freedom for the sake of the sinful flesh, not denying it either. And so we should be a people who know how to fast and who know how to feast and who know when to do which. I have this little book I give the graduates in our church. It's called On the Shoulders of hobbits, aren't you? You're just so surprised I would do that, aren't you? And it's about how the works of both, it's brilliant because it talks about both Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, and the way they really talk and think about the virtues. It's amazing. It's fun. And so the author, Lewis Marcos, makes this point. He says that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, of course, the Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis's book, the enemy, the white witch, the first time you meet her in the book, uh, she comes across the woodland animals throwing a Christmas feast because the winter, which has been there for who knows how long, has begun to thaw. And she's outraged that this is happening. She says to them, what is the meaning of all of this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? 
And in puritanical rage, she turns them all to stone. And Marco says, you know, what Lewis is doing there is he's saying that's the nature of evil. Satan is the cosmic killjoy, not Christ. And this is a theme that really comes up throughout the books, the Narnia books. Later in Prince Caspian, we meet two dwarves, Trumpkin and Nicobrick, if you remember uh, these characters. And they provide the contrast uh, that Lewis is trying to make. Trumpkin is in, uh, you know, if you want to put him in a camp, he's in the licensed camp. He smokes. He likes to drink. He celebrates life. Nicobrick is uh, the legalist. He is austere and serious and refuses to be infiltrated by vulgarities such as smoke and drink and revelry. And Trumpkin, you know, is a little loose morally by his account. Uh, well, one night, the animals and the fawns begin to celebrate Aslan's victory over the Telmarines, and everyone begins to dance and to sing and to celebrate, which is appropriate on such occasions, right? Everyone except Nicobrick. He alone stayed where he was and looked on in silence, we read. And Lewis there, I think, is portraying the elder brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. The party is going on. The victory has been won. Grace has been victorious and extended, and he stays alone outside and won't come in, and he won't celebrate. And here's the point, I think, both in what Lewis is writing and also what Jesus is teaching in Luke 15, is that refusal to celebrate is a moral failure. So Lewis Marcus writes this, It may, indeed, it should seem strange to many Christian readers, especially non-smoking, teetotaling evangelicals like myself, that the bad guy would be the one who refuses to smoke or dance. But Lewis, like Tolkien, understood that the ability and the willingness to accept and take joy in appropriate pleasures is a virtue. The true distinguishing mark between a good and bad use of such things, like food and alcohol and tobacco, is whether the use of it increases or destroys love, joy, and peace. That's really helpful. But here's an observation, okay? I have an observation. And it's that a smaller portion of the church struggles with going to the excess with things, too much freedom, but, but it's a really big deal when it happens. A larger percentage of Christians struggle with too little, with too little freedom and too little joy and too little celebration, and, and that's not seen, it's not a big deal. We don't express the same moral concern. In fact, we see their limited joy and freedom as a virtue, and that's a problem. The church seems to be more afraid of too much freedom than too little freedom, and I'm afraid that means we've lost the center. There's a slippery slope in both directions. Some slip away from the faith into liberalism and immorality. Others slip into moralism. And both lose the gospel. Third, love then is intolerantly tolerant. And I say it this way because what Paul's trying to help us do here is strike the balance. It'll be even more clear in the section we look at next week, so hold on. But look at verse one with me. He says, As for the weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over, over opinions. So on the one hand, we're called to love one another in this mess. That's that word welcome. It means to take hold of someone and bring them into your life. Isn't that a great thought? Isn't that a great word? To take hold of someone and bring them into your life, bring them into your home. Love demands that we enjoy the ways we choose to do life differently and cheer for one another in those things. Can I say that again? Love demands that we enjoy 
the ways that we choose to do life differently where there is no clear right and wrong and we cheer for one another in those things. We don't let our differences make us feel like we're on different teams. But on the other hand, at the same time, we're constantly fighting for the, the, the fight of the gospel. We insist on grace. And that's the balance. That's the balance. Because, you see, first, goal is the love. And so the point of all the rules that God has given us, all of the right and wrongs that we do have, is love. It's not the rules. The point is love, not the rules. So verse 8 of chapter 13, we're told love fulfills the law. Our overriding concern is love. It says we owe one another love. Do you see that in verse 8? It's a really amazing metaphor there that there's a debt of love that we owe to one another, Paul says. There's a debt that we as Christian people owe to our neighbors and to our city. And it's a, it's a really fascinating metaphor to use. Because on, on the one hand, if you're a, de- you're a debtor to someone if you have something that belongs to them. Right? I owe you love but not because you've loved me. I owe you love because the love of God that he has shown to me. And that's the point, I think. So in chapter 14, verse 7, it, we, we're told that none of us lives to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. So God loves me. God's love for me makes me a debtor to you because the love he has shown to me belongs to you. It's not mine to keep. So you can be a debtor in one of two ways. You can be a debtor to someone if you, um, if you owe, owe them something that they've given to you or if you owe them something that belongs to them. That's been given to you by somebody else. If I give my child something that I intend for him to give to one of his children, if I, hey, Canaan, here's 20 bucks, pay for Isaac's lunch. He owes that to his brother because it's been given to him by his father for the sake of being given to his brother. Do you see what I'm saying? You can be in debt when you borrow something and have to pay it back, or you can be in debt when someone gives you something to give away. And that's the meaning, the second. We owe one another love because of how God has loved us in Jesus. We're stealing from one another if we don't love. We're stealing from our city if we aren't giving away whatever blessing God has given to us. And so our first concern must be to love well, not to do it right. I mean, the Pharisee and the the scribe in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, their number one thing was to do it right. Remember, so they came across the man on the road, and what did they do? Their concern for being right and doing it right led them away from love. And we're going to see that love means, even if I'm free, sometimes I make myself a slave and conform to the expectations of others because the overriding concern is not that I always have it right and know it right, and do it right, but that I love. But there's a balance. And the balance is that we're told by Paul, welcome the week, but look what he says, but don't get caught up in arguing about things that don't matter. Don't let them start adding to the gospel, right? Jesus plus fill in the blank. And the scholars agree that the issue uh, here in the Roman church is that Jewish Christians were being converted, and they were saying things like, you know, it's not enough to believe in Jesus, You have to have circumcision. You have to observe the Sabbath. That's the day's reference there. You have to follow the Old Testament dietary law. That's the food concern here at the beginning of chapter 14. And if you don't don't do these things, if you don't follow all the rules, if you don't say everything God said to do in the Old Testament, then you're not a real Christian, right? If If you drink, right, if you vote Democrat, see what we do? There's a real danger And the real danger is that as you try to love others, that you lose the gospel of grace. And that can't happen. Love is intolerantly tolerant. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. 
Let me say it again. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing is the gospel. And on that one thing, we have to be absolutely inflexible. Everything else is met with charity. But not that, because if you lose, if you lose the gospel of grace, you lose everything. And that's Paul's concern. And his concern is not only to maintain grace, but he wants us, he's, he's after life change, remember? He's after the obedience of faith. And that's the last thing, really quickly, as we come to a close. He insists upon grace because he knows that grace is ultimately the motivator for a life of obedience and holiness to the Lord. Grace is a drill instructor. That's my last point. Now, what do I mean? Well, we tend to prefer moral rules and less grace because it feels like too much grace is dangerous. If you tell people God loves you no matter what, whether you're good or you're bad, then they won't have any motivation to obey, will they? So too much grace feels like a dangerous thing, but I just want to say to you this morning, too much grace is like saying there's such a thing as too much oxygen. Let me just make this connection for you. In Colossians 2, Paul's writing about people who say, too much grace is a bad thing. They promote, we're told there, asceticism and severity. Those are his words. And, but what he says is, but those things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is a powerful statement. He says there, there's no power in rules. I mean, it's easy to think. The more rules, the better. Paul says, no, there, there's an appearance of wisdom in thinking that way, but it doesn't work. Well, what does? And in Titus 2, Paul says that it's actually grace not law that trains us to say no to sin. Grace is the power for a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Grace isn't a free pass. It's a spiritual power, and that's why we have to fight for the gospel, because if we lose grace, we lose the power for Christianity. For the grace of God has appeared, Paul says, referring, of course, to Jesus Christ coming into the world. And here's, here's our gospel. Jesus gave himself to redeem us by dying for our sins on the cross in our place. The innocent condemned for the guilty, that's grace. And it means that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if Jesus is your hope, then God does not look down on you when you mess up and condemn you. He's not keeping track of how often you get it wrong so that he can make sure you pay. There's a simple phrase that is meant to dictate the way that we relate to him and to one another in chapter 14, verse 3, where Paul says, don't pass judgment on one another. Don't don't quarrel over opinions like this. Don't think of yourself as any more godly than anybody else. Uh, because, verse 3, he says, the person that you disagree with, don't forget, God has welcomed him. Friend, God has welcomed you. You don't have to change. You don't have to be any different. You don't have to be anything other than who you are to come to him. Steve Brown is fond of saying, the only people who get any better are the people who know that if they never get any better, God will love them anyway. Isn't that what this table's about? This table is a reminder of that truth, that grace means God loves us in spite of ourselves for Jesus' sake because of the work that he has done. I don't have to get it right. I don't have to make sure that you get it right. Instead, instead of spending all of our time making sure I'm right and you're right and we're right and everything's right, instead we should spend our time and our energy just celebrating the truth that we're loved. We are the Lord's, Paul says. We are the Lord's. And so we come to his table this morning knowing that. Can we pray together? So, Father, as we prepare our hearts to come and celebrate this meal with you, we do pray that you would drive that truth home to our hearts, that this is, you are a hospitable God. You, you set this table before us because you, uh, like a host that invites 
a loved one over, you, you desire for us to come and to eat with you and to celebrate with you and to be nourished by you. And so we come, but would you give us, would you give us great faith and great courage to believe that we don't have to dress ourselves up to come? Those that got into the wedding feast were not those that had their own garments, but the ones who received the garments that you provide. And so in the righteousness of Christ by faith, uh, we believe that we don't need to do anything to improve ourselves, that we couldn't possibly improve ourselves. But all of the good that you've given to us in Jesus, we come putting on Christ, as Paul says in our passage, dressed in his robes. What could we possibly do? be any any better dressed than that and so as we come would i pray that we would see your arms wide open to embrace us your arms wide open to receive us your arms nailed wide open to the cross undo our sin so that we might have fellowship with you because it's in that that we are healed and so come and be with us and eat with us and commune with us around this meal we pray in jesus name amen And so he sends us now to do just that, not just to one another, but to this great city that we live in, to this world so desperately in need of someone to touch it with grace. How desperate the world needs people of grace. He sends us to be just that, promising to go with us, to send us to welcome those because he has welcomed us. It's out of the power of those, of that truth and of these words that we are sent now to do just that. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.